Today, we begin a seven-week sermon series through the truly fascinating book of Esther. In 597 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took the people of Israel into exile. But the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians. So the events of the book of Esther take place as the people of Israel are living under the Persian Empire. And it's important for us to know that the exile of God's people was more than just a punishment. The exile actually served a strategic purpose. Even under Babylonian and Persian rule, God was advancing his purposes and making good on his promises. Specifically, he was preparing the world for the Messiah. You see, as a result of their exile, the Jews were no longer tied to the land of Israel. They were dispersed all throughout the empire. And so there were synagogues all over the place. Despite being a minority culture, the people of God were planting churches, so to speak. God was using Israel's exile to prepare the world to receive the gospel. God was laying the groundwork for Jesus and his disciples, who spent much of their time traveling around and teaching in these very same synagogues. So in the midst of exile, even in the midst, in the midst of exile, God is at work. Even if he is nowhere to be found, even if he seems absent, God is at work. The kingdom of God was never intended to be limited geographically to the land of Canaan or the nation of Israel. It would begin there, but the biblical hope was always to see the kingdom of God established globally. And that biblical hope was advancing during Israel's time in exile, even if they didn't recognize it. This also explains the why behind God's instructions to the people of Israel regarding how they ought to live and behave while in exile. The prophet Jeremiah encouraged the people of Israel to accept their exile, not to resist it, and to trust the Lord in the midst of it. In Jeremiah chapter 27, God makes it clear that he is permitting Babylon to establish the Babylonian empire. And he commands the people of Israel to submit to Babylon, to serve Babylon, to honor Babylon, to pray for Babylon, and to seek the welfare of Babylon. And this divine instruction is looming in the background of the book of Esther, as well as Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Anyone familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah should be asking, are the characters in the book of Esther living faithfully under exile? In the midst of their difficult circumstances, are they trusting the sovereignty of God or are they failing to trust the sovereignty of God? So, with that said, let's turn to the book of Esther. For, for the sake of time, we only read a portion of chapter 2, but I'll give an overview of the first two chapters as we go. 
The book of Esther tells the origin story of a Jewish feast called Purim. And the story is itself full of feasts. The book opens with an extravagant feast. We're first introduced to King Ahasuerus, the Persian emperor. From now on, I'll just refer to him as the king because I really do not want to keep saying that. We're told that the king reigned over an incredibly vast empire, but his throne was in the capital city, Susa. Verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. It goes on to describe the royal extravagance of the king's feast. Tapestries, linens, marble pillars, mosaics, gold, silver, precious stones, and fine wine. There were probably military parades with thousands of soldiers marching behind decorated generals. And listen, I think we should be slow to say that the king was being self-indulgent or reckless here. There was a clear political purpose behind all this feasting. The king is growing his popularity, earning the favor and trust of his people, and attempting to maintain order throughout a truly vast empire. He invites rulers from every province and he's garnering their loyalty and submission through festivity. But he's also welcoming commoners, both great and small, to feast in his garden. So, this feast was probably well received by everyone. The king was not just an immature and self-indulgent drunkard. Arguably, he is taking care to maintain peace and unity throughout the empire. And this sets the stage for what happens next. On the seventh Sunday of the feast, at the climax of all the festivity the king requests the presence of his beautiful bride, Vashti. But she refuses to come. Now, again, we we should be slow to jump to conclusions here. If the whole point of this feast was to bind the empire together, it would make sense that the king would want all the various provinces to witness the queen wearing her crown as the essence and embodiment of royal glory. She is the feminine embodiment of the empire. The king has himself demonstrated the wealth and power and generosity of the Persian empire. 
And now he desires to demonstrate the beauty, glory, and elegance of the Persian Empire in the person of his bride. So it it may be fair to call this a form of objectification. But we shouldn't dismiss its political purpose. As we will see, there are, there are many things in the book of Esther that seem wrong to us. And indeed, many of them are wrong. But this was a different culture and a different time. And these things would not have been so strange. Regardless, Vashti's refusal to appear before the king presented a political crisis. The feast had been going so well. The power and glory of the empire was on full display, but now the king's authority is publicly in question. Something has to be done. And so long story short, Vashti is sent away. A decree is written with hopes of saving face. It's a PR campaign. And the search begins for a new queen. Every province throughout the entire empire was called upon to gather together their beautiful young virgins and bring them to the king's palace. Each woman was to prepare herself for a night with the king, and the king would choose from among them his new queen. Again, we we are struck by the immorality of all this, but it would not have been strange at the time. In fact, families living under Persian rule would have volunteered their daughters for this. So we are finally introduced to the main characters in this story. Mordecai and Esther. Let's talk about Mordecai. Throughout this story, we often see Mordecai, quote, sitting at the king's gate. Now, this does not mean that Mordecai was loitering outside the palace walls. The king's gate was the supreme court of Persia. The gate of the city was where the elders of the city sat to hear official matters. So Mordecai was a member of the high court in the capital city. Perhaps he was the Jewish representative on the court. And he appears to have been rather ambitious. He appears to have been scheming for greater influence in the kingdom. Now, there are two things to remember about Mordecai as we continue through our study of Esther. The first is that Mordecai was a Benjaminite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And which other notable Jewish ruler was from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul. King Saul. And over the next few weeks, we'll come to understand the significance of this. But for now, just remember, Mordecai was a Benjaminite. The second thing to remember about Mordecai is actually recorded for us at the end of chapter 2. So I'm going to jump ahead briefly. Chapter 2, verse 21. As Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, Mordecai is not immediately rewarded for this. But the turning point in this whole story, the the turning point in the entire book of Esther will hinge upon the king remembering Mordecai's loyalty. So keep that in mind. Okay, let's talk about Esther. Chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. So Esther was Mordecai's first cousin, but apparently Mordecai was old enough to be her father. And she is taken into the king's palace in order to win the king's favor. Now, the narrative seems to indicate that Mordecai and Esther were a bit compromised. It seems that they had largely assimilated into Persian culture. Remember, as we read, we're supposed to be asking ourselves, are the characters in this story living faithfully under exile? Are they trusting in the sovereignty of God? At the beginning of this story, it seems clear to me that the answer is no. They are not living very faithfully under exile. To begin, let's look at their names. Mordecai means Marduk is Lord. Marduk was a Babylonian god. So Mordecai is likely named after a Babylonian god. As for Esther, her Jewish name is Hadassah, but she doesn't go by her Jewish name. She goes by her Persian name. The name Esther may have been derived from the name Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love. And Mordecai actually commands Esther to hide her identity as a Jew. And in verse 9, we see that she is not even bothering to eat kosher. She's eating and drinking whatever the palace provides. And she enters into a contest to win the favor of a Gentile king. She is actively trying to intermarry with a Gentile. In addition, as we will see, Mordecai is a Daniel figure. And Daniel was himself a Joseph figure. Both Joseph and Daniel were eventually elevated to the king's right hand. Both Joseph and Daniel were second in rank to the king. And as this story progresses, the same will be true of Mordecai. However, Joseph and Daniel did not scheme and maneuver for more power in the kingdom. They were simply obedient. They were simply faithful. They trusted God to elevate them at the proper time if he saw fit. But Mordecai is a schemer. 
Again, he commands Esther to hide her identity as a Jew. He offers her up as a candidate to marry a Gentile king. And as we will see next week, he refuses to show honor to a duly appointed government official. Think back to the prophet Jeremiah. This is not how the Jews were called to live in exile. But despite all these things, God, by his grace, is determined to use Esther and Mordecai for his purposes. Esther wins the favor of everyone, including the king, and she has chosen to replace Vashti as queen. Now, there's a theme emerging that I want us to see. The events of Esther, chapters 1 and 2, evoke patterns and images which call to mind Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It seems as though the imagery is intended to welcome a comparison with Adam and Eve. The king of all the known world is feasting in a garden. On the seventh day of the feast, the heart of the king is merry and at rest. Like the animals in Genesis 2, all the king's subjects have paraded before him. And yet more than anything, the king is looking for his queen. But unlike Eve, Vashti is nowhere to be found. So once again, the king's subjects are paraded before him. This time, young, beautiful virgins. But only Esther truly completes him. Only Esther is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. In short, Esther is a new Eve. And as it stands, everything seems to be going very well. But, as we will see next week, a serpent has slithered into the king's garden. And Esther, like so many great women of the Bible before her, Esther will be called upon to outwit the serpent, to beat the crafty serpent at his own game, thereby preserving the people and the promises of God. Of course, we as Christians are subject to an even greater and more glorious emperor than King Ahasuerus. We worship and follow the emperor of emperors, and his empire is even more vast than Persia. His kingdom is expanding and will continue to expand until the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And and who... Who has our emperor chosen to be the feminine embodiment of his kingdom? Who has Jesus chosen to be his bride and queen? The church. We are now the greater Eve. We are the greater Esther. Our job is to serve the kingdom to bring honor to the king, and to beautify ourselves before the nations. 
And how does the church beautify herself? Through holy living. By living distinctly in the midst of exile. By maintaining a quiet dignity in the midst of a hostile culture. And, as Esther will demonstrate in the coming weeks, we must be willing to bear witness even unto death. Concealing and suppressing our Christian identity is not the way to live within a culture that opposes us. We want to maintain our distinctiveness. And how do we do that? Well, we'll be talking about that over the next few weeks. But for today, I want to share two things that I think we should definitely not do. Number one, we should not give in to despair. It's tempting to look at all the darkness and depravity and sheer foolishness around us and think, there is no hope. What kind of world are we handing over to our children and grandchildren? There is no hope. And to be honest, I, I've, I've thought those thoughts. But despair and cynicism never get us anywhere. In fact, despair and cynicism are unbecoming of Christians. It's a faithless posture. It's an unbelieving posture. So we must persist in hope. Number two, we should not assimilate into our culture. Just as it's tempting to despair, it's also tempting to take the easy way out. Stop swimming upstream. If you can't beat them, join them. Life is so much easier if we just allow ourselves to become more and more like the world around us. But in doing that, we are not only forfeiting the promises of God for us and for our children, We are choosing not to love our neighbors. Think about that. When a society is misguided, confused, decadent, depraved, that society needs the church to be the beautified bride of Christ and nothing less. To assimilate is to adulterate. And when the church commits adultery against the emperor of emperors, the entire world suffers. Our world is changing rapidly. And the church has forfeited much of its social capital. But thankfully... We as 21st century Christians are not blazing a new trail. There are old trails for us to learn, and the book of Esther is going to help us learn them. We are going to be asking ourselves the same question we asked of Mordecai and Esther. Are we living faithfully under exile? In the face of difficulty and opposition, are we trusting in the sovereignty of God? 
May we come to answer in the affirmative. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a, in a dark and confused world, you are light and truth. Teach us to trust in your sovereignty as your people have been doing for millennia. Jesus, you are the emperor of emperors. You are a good, loving, generous, self-sacrificial king. And we are, we are overjoyed humbled to have been chosen as your bride and queen. Holy Spirit, beautify us and inspire us with confidence to engage the darkness and the confusion around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.